Scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 33 through 34. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. Now speak this to your shame. So two men were up in Alaska on a hunting trip when they happened upon a grizzly bear. And upon seeing that grizzly bear, one of the men sat down, opened his bag, and pulled out a pair of tennis shoes, took off his hunting boots, and put the tennis shoes on. His friend looked at him and said, What are you doing? You can't outrun a grizzly bear. And the guy said, well, That's true. All I got to do, though, is outrun you. And the point of that story is, Choose your friends wisely. You don't want to be the guy who's left behind to fend for himself with a grizzly bear because the other guy abandoned you. And you know what? That whole concept of choosing your friends wisely, that's something that Scripture teaches. You can go to the book of Proverbs. There are many Proverbs on friend selection, but there's one I want you to pay attention to very quickly. It's Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26. Solomon said, The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Solomon is saying, be picky about who you befriend. This morning, I'm going to take a break for just this week from our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. We just finished the, looking at the first group of exiles who returned last week. Next week, we'll resume that study, and we'll start looking at the second group of exiles that return under the leadership of Ezra. So I hope you'll be back next week as we continue that study. But today, I want to do something special. I've done this two, no, three of the, two of the past three years. I've done a special lesson for our students as they go back to school. In 2019, I focused on Daniel, and I did so because Daniel was a young man when his story started. In fact, scholars believe that he was the equivalent of our, our youngest high school students because according to records, those young men who went to Babylon and entered the training program were probably as young as 14 years old. And then last year I did a, a lesson for the back-to-school time frame, and I focused on Joseph. And we know, according to Genesis chapter 37, that Joseph was 17 years old when his story began. And this morning, as we kind of have this emphasis with our, with our students having gone back to school already, for the most part, we've got college students here who will be leaving very soon to return to college. I, I wanted to have another back-to-school emphasis, and today I want to focus on David. When David's story begins with his anointing, he's just likely a teenager. In fact, think about the whole Goliath episode. David was not enlisted in the Israelite army at that point. And according to Numbers chapter 1 and verse 45, enlisted soldiers in the Israelite army had to be at least 20 years old. So David, probably at the start of his story, is still just a teenager. But David was different. That's what I want to focus on today, the fact that David was different, and that he was different in one particular category, one particular category that we often overlook. But to, 
illustrate what I mean by David being different, think about this. Saul was appointed the first king of Israel, chosen directly by God. What's interesting about the selection of Saul is that Saul looked like the perfect king candidate. If you go over to the book of 1 Samuel and you look at chapter 9 and verse 2, you'll find out that we're told that Saul was the absolute most handsome man in all the land. Not only that, he was the tallest guy in all the land, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was tall and he was handsome. Two things I am not. That's why I'm not a king. But it worked for Saul. He looked like a king. But eventually, Saul's disobedience caused the Lord to reject him as king. And when it came time to choose a replacement, to choose the next king, to anoint the next guy who will sit on the throne, the standards were different. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's probably a passage you've heard before, but Samuel goes to Jesse's house. He's told that one of Jesse's sons will be the next king. And the first son, the eldest son, a, a guy named Eliashib, comes out and Samuel looks at him based on previous knowledge with King Saul, looks at how tall Eliashib is, looks at how handsome Eliashib is, and says, surely this guy's got to be the next king. But God said no. And then God gave him some instructions. They are probably quite familiar to you. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where God said, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In other words, God said, I'm looking for something different in the next king. I'm looking for someone who looks like a king on the inside. And that's when he chose David. You see, David was different. And we don't need to be ashamed of being different. But I want to focus on a category of difference in David's life that easily gets overlooked as we look at all the other exemplary things about him. What I want to focus on, and especially what I want our young people to hear today, is that David was different when it came to relationships. See, David was different when it came to relationships, and there are two primary ways in which this is evidenced. First, if you look at David's relationships, he was different because he affiliated with people of faith. Now, this isn't groundbreaking stuff. I understand that. But David was very intentional about who he surrounded himself with. There's two whole chapters in the Bible dedicated to identifying David's mighty men, to listing and talking about the people David surrounded himself with. Two whole chapters. You can't say that about everybody else. In fact, you definitely can't say that about Saul. You know, Saul was the first king, so he's kind of the comparative example for us. Saul famously drove away the only good godly influence in his life. That man was Samuel. If you don't know much about Samuel, just know this. Samuel did it all. During his heyday, Samuel was the last judge of Israel, a priest trained by Eli, a prophet according to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 20, and a seer 
according to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 19. Samuel did it all. He was your go-to holy man of that day. He's the one who anointed Saul. He was the one who would correct Saul when Saul erred. Needless to say, Samuel was the kind of guy you wanted on your side. But after Saul was rejected by God for the second time due to his disobedience, his relationship with Samuel was permanently damaged. Look at what we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 34 and 35. This is after Saul, ordered by God to go annihilate the Amalekites, told to not let anyone survive, told to not take any spoils of war, and he broke God's command. He disobeyed God intentionally. Samuel arrives on the scene and con condemns him for his actions. And then you get down to verse 34 and 35 of 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're told that Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. The one guy Saul needed in his life the one person he really needed to have around was pushed away because of his disobedience. And here's what's interesting. We just read 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 34 and 35. I want you to just journey 14 verses further into the text. That will take you to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14. And look at what it says there. It says, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. After Samuel left, after the one good godly influence on Saul's life left, guess what left next? The Spirit of the Lord. He didn't have anyone else around him to influence him to follow God. He didn't have anyone else around him to point him in the direction of obedience. He didn't have anyone else around him to correct him when he disobeyed. And so after Samuel left, the next thing to go was God's own very spirit from King Saul. But David was different. And it's evident from his friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. We're introduced to their friendship in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, where we're told that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And in verse 3, we're told that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, David and Jonathan's friendship really shouldn't come as a surprise to us for one very simple reason. They both possess tremendous, tremendous faith. You see, in that day and age, Jonathan and David were the two people in government positions who really had faith. And you can see it, as one commentator pointed out, because they both had initiated faith-motivated attacks against the military superior Philistines that resulted in victories for Israel. We know about David's. It happens in 1 Samuel chapter, um, chapter 17. His defeat of the giant Goliath. David voluntarily challenged Goliath 
because he knew the Lord was on his side. David's faith in God brought about victory. You can see it when David hears Goliath's challenge and approaches Saul for the opportunity to go to war against him. He says this, verse 37 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David had faith that the Lord would be on his side and bring about victory. But David's not the only one. We overlook Jonathan so much, but Jonathan had the exact same faith. If you journey back to the 14th chapter of 1 Samuel, Jonathan engages in a faith-motivated attack against the Philistines as well. He took his armor-bearer and voluntarily attacked a Philistine garrison by themselves. All because Jonathan knew the Lord would be on his side. Jonathan's faith in God for the victory was evident in something he said in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 6. His father and his father's soldiers are all hiding in caves, afraid of the Philistines. And Jonathan decides, you know what? I'm going to go take care of these Philistines. And he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. In other words, he's saying, it doesn't matter how many people the Lord has on his side, because the Lord can deliver no matter what. He's got the same faith that David had. That's what their friendship was grounded in. Mutual faith. David picked a best friend who shared the same faith as him. You can see it later in their, in their lives. When Saul is on the attack, hunting down David. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, Jonathan made time to go visit David. And in that interaction, you'll read in verse 15 through 18, that David, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. The intent of, of Jonathan's visit with David was for the expressed purpose of building up David's faith. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of, of this persecution, in the midst of this fugitive lifestyle that David's been forced into by King Saul, Jonathan intentionally says, I'm going to go build up my friend so that he doesn't stay discouraged, so that he doesn't stop trusting in the Lord. If you keep on reading, you'll see there in verse 17, And Jonathan said to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Do you understand what Jonathan is saying? Jonathan, because of his faith, because he believes in the Lord's design, Jonathan is, letting, Jonathan is letting David know, I'm abdicating the throne. It's not mine because the Lord's given it to you. 
Jonathan can't say that unless he trusts God. It's an expression of their mutual faith. And then in verse 18, the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. God is mentioned twice in this passage. But he's technically alluded to by the fact that Jonathan is confirming God's will. And all this shows that their relationship, which is extolled as the exemplary friendship in Scripture, their friendship has common ground in God. And the lesson we should take away from David and Jonathan's friendship is that we need to choose who we associate with, who we surround ourselves with, who we affiliate with, who we befriend based on shared faith. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can't be around other people who don't have your faith. But I'm saying you've got to protect your faith even through your friendships. That's what David does here with Jonathan. And it calls to mind a passage that Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. He said, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. In this proverb... Solomon offers a promise and a warning. The promise is easy. The promise is that wisdom is contagious. What Solomon is saying is if you surround yourself with people who the Bible considers to be wise, you'll by nature of proximity become a wiser person. And we, we get this. If you surround yourself with people who are positive, you're going to be more positive. If you surround yourself with people who are trying to be healthy, you're going to be healthier. It's so much easier for me on the journey of, of trying to be a healthy person and lose weight because my wife joined me in that. And she surpassed me in that, actually. But having someone that is sharing the same objective with you makes all the difference because it becomes contagious. But the promise isn't the part of this verse that's so challenging. It's actually, it's actually the warning. The warning says this, the companion of fools will suffer harm. Solomon warns that associating with the foolish is dangerous. The warning is not if you are a companion of fools, you will become a fool. I mean, we, we, can ass we assume that because the first part says, hey, if you associate with the wise, you'll become wise, then the converse must be true, that if you associate with the fools, you'll become a fool. But that's not what Solomon says. Solomon says that the person who associates with fool is a person who will eventually be impacted by the behavior of the fool. That means you may spend your entire life around fools and never adopt a fool's mentality, never adopt a fool's behavior, never adopt a fool's worldview. But eventually, when the fool's life explodes, you're going to be impacted by the shrapnel. And the point is, a companion of fools suffers harm because when the fool suffers harm, his companions are too close. 
That's an important nuance for us to grasp. Because some of us have defended unhealthy relationships by saying, I'll never do what they do. I'll never go where they go. I'll never think like they think. I'll never say what they say. But Solomon's point is that thinking like that is completely wrong. Because the companion of fools, regardless of whether or not they adopt the lifestyle or mindset of a fool, will eventually be harmed by the outcome of the fool's behavior. So pick your friends wisely. And I think that's why Paul instructs us to not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. His instruction reminds Christians that the people with whom we surround ourselves will have a direct impact on our lives. If you surround yourself with the faithless, then your faith is going to be less than it could be. But if you surround yourself with the faithful, you will have a greater possibility of being filled with faith. So when I look at David's life, the first thing that stands out to me regarding his relationships is that he was intentional about who he chose to be around. He affiliated with people of faith. Saul didn't, and it cost Saul dearly. But there is one other thing we need to notice about David's relationships, and that is the fact that they were different because he prevailed over peer pressure. We all know what peer pressure is. We've all experienced it at some point in our life, and too often we assume that these guys over here are the only ones that experience peer pressure, but us, we as adults deal with it too. And so did Saul. And Saul was horrible when it came to peer pressure. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul and his army were preparing to go to war with the Philistines. They were just waiting on Samuel to show up and offer some sacrifices so they could uh, seek the Lord's blessings on their battle. But Samuel failed to show up at the time appointed. And so Saul decided he needed to make the sacrifices himself. But Saul wasn't a priest. Saul wasn't even a Levite. So he wasn't authorized to make those sacrifices. And when Samuel finally did arrive and saw what Saul had done, he called him out on it. The interesting thing is, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, what the first words out of Saul's mouth were to Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 11, Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me. Do you know what that implies? That implies that Saul was motivated to do something that was wrong, something that he wasn't authorized to do, based on the fact that he was more concerned with satisfying the people than on obeying God. That's called peer pressure. He wanted to do what would satisfy the people instead of what would be right with God. That's peer pressure. He let the behavior of the people dictate what he did. But David was different. And it showed in his life one day when he was presented 
with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You can turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 24 and read about it. David was a fugitive from Saul at this point in his story. David was living in caves and hiding from Saul day after day, but it just so happens in 1 Samuel 24 that David and his men are hiding in the depths of a cave, and Saul arrives at the same cave for a potty break. Saul doesn't know David's in that cave. And Saul is in his most vulnerable position possible. No guards, none of his 3,000 soldiers there to protect him. And he has no clue that David's behind him. According to the story, David sneaks up on Saul and cuts off the corner of his robe. But I want you to notice something in the text here. I want you specifically to notice where the idea of sneaking up on King Saul and doing something came from. In 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 4, we're told that it was the men of David. It was his men who encouraged him to act and even suggested that this was a divinely ordained opportunity for him. That detail matters because it shows that even David faced peer pressure. He's being pressured by his men, by the very people who have trusted him and that he's entrusted with his life. He's being pressured by the men who have taken his side in this uh, rivalry between him and King Saul. He's being pressured by these men who are living as fugitives with him. He's being pressured by them to take some sort of action against King Saul and end their fugitive lifestyle. And they're even suggesting that God must have opened this door for them. I wonder, as David quietly moved towards Saul in that cave with a blade in hand, I wonder if he knew what he was going to do. I wonder if he was mulling over the possibility of an assassination. Hadn't he been told the past few years that he was destined to be the next king? Didn't God promise to deliver his enemies into his hands? I wonder as he approached King Saul if that pressure he felt from his men was starting to build up and causing him to really contemplate some malicious activity here. In the end, though, all David did was cut off a piece of Saul's robe, and even that bothered his conscience because we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 5 that after he did this, his conscience bothered him. But why? Why would his conscience bother him in this moment? Why would he be bothered by just cutting off a piece of cloth? Well, he explained it to his men when he said, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David was conscience stricken because he had considered doing something that was contrary to the Lord's will. And did you notice? Notice here in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 7, what David does when he returns from cutting off that robe. 
So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. In other words, David chose to be the persuader instead of the persuaded. Instead of being the one who was pressured to do the wrong thing, David stood by his convictions and became the one who convinced everyone else to do the right thing. Are we willing to be different like that? When the world is pressuring us, when our friends and peers at school are pressuring us, when our co-workers or our neighbors or our political parties or our celebrities and they're pressuring us to think and act in a way that is contrary to the Lord's will, are we willing to be different? God acknowledges the power of peer pressure in Scripture. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 through 10, in a very unusual command that says, If your brother or your son or your daughter or your wife or your friend entices you secretly, saying, Let's go and serve other gods, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall you I nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him. But you shall kill him, verse 9. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So under Mosaic law, if your brother or wife or child or friend tries to get you to engage in idolatry, it's not enough for you just to say no. You were expected to execute him as well. That was God's response to peer pressure. And it's all because God wanted to protect his people's relationship with him from relationships that could have a negative spiritual impact. Now, I, I'm not bringing this passage up because I think we need to stone people who try to pressure us into doing something we shouldn't. No. I'm pointing out this passage because it shows us just how concerned God was about the effectiveness of peer pressure. And when we get to the New Testament... You're not going to find a passage where God says, don't give in to peer pressure. But you are going to find Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, which is a passage you've probably heard before. It simply says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know, the ultimate goal of peer pressure is conformity. Peer pressure is intended to get you to do something or to say something or to think something that is acceptable to the majority regardless of whether or not it is acceptable to God. So giving in to peer pressure is ultimately a decision to conform rather than to be transformed. And David shows us that it's possible not to give in to peer pressure. And because he's identified as a man after God's own heart, David also shows us that it's expected that we don't give in to peer pressure. There's an old story about a farmer who grabbed his shotgun to shoot a flock of crows that were messing with his garden. 
And it just so happened that the pets, the family's pet parakeet had gotten out of its cage and flown outside and was gathered with those crows in the garden. He pulled a shotgun out and walked out to that garden, fired a few shots. And then walked over to the birds and discovered the parrot badly injured. And when the farmer's children saw the injured bird, they asked, Dad, what happened? He just turned and looked at them and said, Bad company. The point of that is this. Paul wasn't kidding when he said bad company corrupts good morals. He wanted us to be aware of the company we keep. The people we choose to associate with. And the friends we decide to make. Because those relationships can have a major influence on our lives. And so as I mentioned at the start of this sermon, we're called upon to choose wisely. And this morning... The sermon is intentionally directed to our youth because of what they face when they go back to school. But the sermon's applicable for all of us because peer pressure is present everywhere. And we still have to decide, even as adults, who we're going to surround ourselves with. But the truth is, there is one truly great friend out there. It's Jesus who refers to us, to re who refers to his disciples as his friend. And he's the one who said there is no greater love than for a friend to lay down his life, and he's the one who did it. So it might be this morning, it might be this morning that you need to be cleansed by the blood of the greatest friend you'll ever know. If you need to make the decision to become a child of God and a, a, a friend of the Lord, then now's the opportunity, and you can do that by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. Repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you need, as a child of God, to seek the prayers of this congregation, to have healthier relationships, to be pickier about who you befriend, to not give in to peer pressure, or you need to repent of falling into one of those sins, then we invite you to come.